And now for the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show, we will be hearing a powerful and poignant story of a refugee in the Holocaust, but a story very different from most such stories. The, uh, the guest that I'm speaking to is Mikhail Dekel, and it is her father who actually, uh, in a sense, fled the Holocaust, but in a pathway very different. He was born and raised in Poland, but ultimately found his way to Iran and would be one of some 1,000 uh, Polish children who were known as the Tehran children. And uh, his long journey and harrowing journey and experience is told in a very uh, intriguing and fascinating book called Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey. Uh, Mikhail Dekel is a professor of English at City College of New York, and before this, author of The Universal Jew, Masculinity, Modernity, and the Zionist Movement. Uh, and this latest book uh, is uh, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. Mikhail Dekel, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much. You tell us in the book that uh, your father was, uh, in, in some respects, distant. Uh, not that he wasn't a loving father, but he was not necessarily forthcoming about his life's experience. And so you knew relatively little about his wartime experience. Uh, tell us how you came to understand more about what he had experienced, because that, of course, is, in a sense, a gateway to you writing this book. That's right. Yes. So my father was uh, a quiet, distant, somewhat enigmatic, somewhat depressive man. He never spoke about his wartime experiences or about his pre-war life. I was born and raised in Israel. He was my Israeli father. I didn't really know anything beyond that. In 2007, about 14 years after he died, I was talking to an Iranian colleague of mine at City College, and the colleague, Salar Abdo, asked me if I knew anything about children who were Holocaust refugees in Iran. I said, yes, my father was such a refugee, but I didn't know much more than that. And that initial conversation is what spurred the book that has now been published a month ago. Um, so that's how the research started. And of course, it took about a decade to find out all the details of this journey. You tell us that uh, he had said that much, that he was one of the so-called Tehran children, but that when you heard him refer to himself as one of the Tehran children, you never really thought of Tehran as a place. I mean, you obviously knew there was such a place named Tehran, but somehow you, you never really understood sort of the implications of, 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 of that name. That's right. Uh, and not only did I not understand the implications of that name, I didn't even think about my father as a Holocaust survivor nor did he refer him to himself as a Holocaust survivor. And this is not just my father, and this is not just even the thousand children who came with him. This is all the Polish-Jewish refugees who, as you said, fled Nazi-occupied Poland into the Soviet Union and survived, or died or survived in the Soviet Union, in Central Asia, in Iran, India, uh, uh, mandatory Palestine, Lebanon, and so on. So these people were didn't were not considered and are still are not considered te 
Holocaust survivors. Uh, as far as Tehran went, yes, I didn't really think of Tehran as a place where my father lived during the war. I just thought of it as a sort of place of transit. Uh, I imagined his journey almost in a kind of fantastical way, his journey from Poland to Palestine through Tehran as something that was very instant. And in fact, I realized, I discovered that it was a three-and-a-half-year-long journey in which they traveled through half the world. They lived in Tehran for seven months. Uh, and so it was actually an actual place, of course. Right, and that ultimate journey from Poland to Iran, 5,000 miles that we are talking about. So an extraordinary journey in many respects. One of the most fascinating things in your book is when you tell us about the many written accounts that were gathered by uh, to, to gather together the stories of these Tehran children. I mean, it was a very concerted effort, uh, and, and one is certainly grateful for that, or otherwise many of these stories would be ultimately lost. Uh, tell us more about the careful process by which many of these stories were gathered and your long journey before you finally were able to uncover your father's own account of this experience. Yes. So the the Poland in 1939, Poland was occupied. Became occupied both by the German forces and Soviet forces. So technically, Poland as a nation state no longer existed at the time. Um, the the in London convened what we call the Polish government in exile, and that government very quickly decided that it would gather the testimonies of Polish citizens, Christian and Jewish, who were in the USSR and other places, and they were collecting this in part in order to have proof of, of atrocities that, uh, so, that Polish citizens experienced in the Soviet Union, and in part to have a record of this exile. So as, par- as part of this concerted effort, they also interviewed these Tehran children in, when they arrived, when they arrived to Palestine, they also interviewed some people in Iran, and those testimonies, even though they were gathered, you know, for somewhat of a propaganda um, purpose, ended up being wonderful sources of um, information for me and for other people researching this. My father's testimony. So I knew my father's testimony existed. I thought that all the testimonies were stored at the Hoover Institute in Stanford. But I did not find my father's testimony there. I was there twice. I worked very hard. I couldn't find it. One day, I was at a conference listening to a scholar talk about children's war testimonies, and that scholar quoted from my father's testimony. It was shocked, of course, and asked her where she got the testimony. She said, from a small archive in an ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. I wrote them. Immediately I got my father's testimony. It turned out that my father gave the testimony in Yiddish, not in Polish, and for whatever reason it was stored in this particular very small, uh, off-the-beaten-path archive. So I was able to retrieve that. I was able to retrieve my father's account of, of his journey. And that, of course, had to be a thrilling discovery for you, because without that, uh, there was no way for you to know as many specifics as you did. And that ultimately, of course, allowed you to retrace uh, your, your father's uh, steps, uh, at least to a large degree. One of the most uh, moving aspects of this story is that uh, it is 
not only the story of your father, but of his father and his father's brother. So this would be your grandfather and your great uncle. And uh, in your words, this is an often repeated story, uh, the tale of two brothers who had made two choices uh, during the war. One had made the wrong choice to return to Nazi-controlled Poland, yet survived, and the other had made the right choice to remain in the Soviet Union and did not survive. It offered a grim moral lesson, the understanding of life as fundamentally ironic. Can you say a word about this aspect of your family's story? Yes. So my family, uh, my father's family, was a very large clan that lived in an, a town in Poland called Ostromazowiecka. September 19, 1939, when the war begins, that entire clan, or a big part of it, flees to the Soviet side. Part of that clan, my great, as you said, my great uncle's family, remains on the Soviet border, just, just, just kind of on, on those towns on the Soviet border. My father's family um, decides that it's going to return to the German side. As punishment, the Soviets deport my father's family to Archangelsk, in, to Siberia, basically. In 1941, the Germans invade the Soviet Union, basically murder or ghettoize and later murder those Jews who are on, right on the border, including my great-uncle and his family. The Jews that were deported as punishment for making, as, you say, as I say, the stupid decision of wanting to return to Germany or to, Poland, to uh, German-occupied Poland, are released and, in fact, saved by their deportations because the Nazis don't get that far into the Soviet interior in order to murder them. So this is, this is the incident that I'm talking about, and it's not just my family. This is the story of many families in this situation. And, of course, it is one of those cases in which uh, one is confronted by nearly impossible choices. And in so many cases, uh, these are choices in which people are making the choices with little, if any, meaningful information whatsoever. And, uh, and one realizes that, that ultimately these choices uh, were, were, were so capricious in nature, and whether or not one survived or not often had very little to do with, with one's own intelligence or good judgment. It was just impossible to know what choice to make in such an impossibly terrible situation. It must, have been, right. it must have been hard for you to think about your father and his family confronting something so awful. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, as I said before, when I started out, I kind of had this fantasy, I guess, of, of uh, a very quick journey somehow. But this journey was a long, arduous, arbitrary path of suffering. And as you said, at every moment, there is a t decision to be made between bad and worse. Are we going to go with the Soviets or are we going to go with the Germans? Um, they, my family already experienced both a Soviet and a German occupation during World War I, and they survived the German occupation, so maybe the Germans will be okay this time. Um, then there are other decisions along the way. Do we separate from our children and send them alone to Iran, or do we keep them with us in Soviet Central Asia and possibly we all perish from starvation? Um, so this, yes, there's a lot of agency. 
um, and and many decisions to be made. But I was also impressed by the way the family stuck together, the way the family um, were there for each other. It was very moving as well. So you end up retracing, at least to a large extent, uh, your father's long journey as a refugee. And one of the most striking things that you discover is that there are certain places, including uh, the village where where that family lived and made their fortune, uh, in which, in a sense, all traces of the Jewish population that once lived there have been wiped clean. And other places where uh, this story, in a sense, is properly remembered and memorialized. Talk for a moment about that striking difference that you found as you retraced your father's path as a as a refugee. Right. So the book, as as you just said, is not just about the past. It's also about the present. Um, because I in the book I travel to Poland, to Russia, to Uzbekistan, to Israel. A colleague of mine travels to Iran. Um, so the book is also about the politics of remembrance, how the story is remembered in each one of those places, and. For in Poland, in my father's hometown, there there are no traces of the family or of Jewish life. And actually, now there are some attempts to um, rebuild some of those traces. But when I visited, it was it was not there. Um, in Russia, there is not exactly any memorialization of the deport. No, no official memorialization of the deportations. Uh, there are some grassroots memorials. In Uzbekistan, I ended up going to the little village where my family had been, and the Uzbek farmers who'd lived there said, we remember your ancestors, we pray for them each year, we remember how hungry they were, we remember that they ate live fro- frogs, and we sort of prayed together, and that was a very moving moment. So, yes, um, you know, remembrance is a national thing. Right, remembrance is a national thing. We, nations do collective memory, and this is a transnational story. So, in some ways, it kind of falls between the chairs, as many refugee stories do. My story, my book, tries to connect the dots between all these different nations, and in itself, become a kind of memorial for these refugees. What do you want to say about your father's experience in Tehran when he was ultimately able to reach? Uh, reach that that far off uh, destination uh, about the experience that he had there. The initial experience when the refugees arrive in Tehran or in, in Iran in in Pahlavi, which is a port in northern Iran, is very positive. Iran is the first nation that they encounter that hasn't been ravaged by war. It has bread. It has cars. It seems to the children pretty modern. And uh, they're, they're very warmly received by the Persian population. That's the initial stage. Later on, they are interned in a re- big ref- Polish refugee camp. The children are interned in a kind of special J- Jewish home within that camp. Um, and lo- the local Jewish population rallies in. Jewish population of Palestine helps them and so on. So then they become, they kind of come under the care of Jewish organizations. Um, so ultimately, the experience in Iran was, was very positive. At the end, um, after a, a, 
a number of months, there is uh, a kind of outcry against the refugees, as we see today in many countries, because prices are going up for the prices of bread are going up and so on, and they end up having to leave. But ultimately, it's, it's a pretty positive experience. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And of course, it's a, it's a story that uh, so many of us in the West uh, do not know at all. That's right. I want you to explain uh, an intriguing line uh, early in the book when you are talking about uh, your father's experience uh, in his childhood before this horror envelops them. Uh, In this chapter, you say at one point, Poland was a wound, my father's, my aunt's, and mine by inheritance. What do you mean by Poland being a wound? And uh, did the experience of following your father's journey, in a sense, do anything to heal that wound for you? Yes. Uh, the reason I say Poland is a wound, because as I, re- as I realized, um, I mean, Poland was my father's family home for eight generations. That's a long time. Uh, they were rooted in Poland. They, had a, they were wealthy. They were a large clan. Uh, so being, um, you know, having to leave and basically having that life end so abruptly was a wound that my, my father didn't want to talk about Poland. My aunt, when I would ask her what happened, she would just say, forget about it. Following my journey, I do feel somewhat differently. Um, I First of all, I appreciate the long life that they had there and the complex life, not only they, but the Jewish population of Poland. At the same time, it is complicated. It is complicated because they... In the in the 1930s, um, there was you know a great deal of anti-Semitism leading up to to the war. Of course, during the after during the Nazi occupation, the situation terrible in Poland was terrible, and we know that 90 percent of Polish Jews perished. Uh, so we that there is something still very. Um, very eerie, of course, about that experience. But uh, at the same time, I travel to Poland. I now have Polish friends. I do feel like my relationship to Poland is definitely normalized. Hmm. And I'm sure that as you followed your father's journey as as a refugee, uh, it probably makes you think maybe in different terms than you ever did before about the plight of refugees today, and especially the plight of children who find themselves refugees fleeing for their lives for one reason or another. Yes, absolutely. And uh, a number of people who have read my book have written me and said, now we understand the refugee experience. Uh, So I think, though my book is about the Holocaust and 1940s, it is also about the universal refugee experience. And uh, yes, absolutely, the arbitrariness, the randomness, those tough decisions that you have to make, also the way refugees make a whole... What, what is a point of transit for many becomes an end point for many others. In other words, you're fleeing from something. You're not necessarily fleeing to something, mm. towards something. And, you know, in, along, in my journey, I had always thought of my father as fleeing from Poland to Palestine. But, in fact, people stayed everywhere along the route. People stayed even in Siberia. People stayed in Uzbekistan. People stayed in Iran. And they became Uzbeks or, or Russian or Iranian. 
Um, so um, the 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 plight, the decisions of my father that that refugees have to make really resonate with me today, and especially children. My father was separated from his parents when he was sent from Central Asia to Iran. Uh, that separation, I think was probably the most traumatic part of the entire journey, and this is a very traumatic journey, as you saw. Uh, so I think, for example, the fact that we're inflicting separation on children today unnecessarily is really, you know, it's just terrible. The book is Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. The author, Mikal Dekel. Mikal Dekel, thank you for writing this extraordinary book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. I was honored to Thank you for you. inviting me. Wonderful. Best thank wishes. you. Bye-bye.